Suburban Eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener, episode 405, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. I'm Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist, coming in loud and clear, hopefully, from the leafy western suburbs of Brisbane, upper middle-class electorate of Ryan. In the tropics, we have Scott in Mackay. How are you, Scott? Good, thanks, Trevor. G'day, Joe. G'day, listeners. How are you all? Scott is sporting a suntan from a recent trip to Airlie Beach and scuba diving, living the dream. And freezing his ass off in Devon is Joe the Tech Guy. Good morning, all. Yes. So we're here, all corners of the globe, for another episode of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. We will talk about news and politics and sex and religion and other things that come up. If you're in the chat room, say hello. There's already five people there watching, so make your comments. We'll try and incorporate them if we can. Watley's there and Don is there. There's just be one other person there. Say hello, whoever you are. Anyway, right, what's on the agenda? You know, not a lot had happened, I thought, since the last episode. I was sort of scratching around for material, but we'll talk... Again, a bit of a debrief about The Voice and a bit more about um, Israel and Gaza and that's kind of the topics we're going to be covering. Um, We'll get to my friend Cam Riley bagged me on his podcast, The Bullshit Filter. So uh, he said my (laughs) arguments were ridiculous and embarrassing and shame on me and everybody else who voted no, so we'll get to that. But uh, we'll work our way up to that. I actually... For first time forever, I think I actually agree with Cam Roller. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we will come to that one. And uh, yeah, so gentlemen, things that have happened. Queensland government announced for people who are feeling the grief from the referendum result in the public service of Queensland, they can apply for five days grief leave. What do you think of that? <laughs> That's just going to uh, get uh, abused. Yeah, exactly. That was my immediate you know, thought was how, what what checking are they doing because that sounds like a good excuse for five days off. Five days off, exactly. You know, you just got to go and say, oh, I'm feeling very grieved about this. You know, I cannot believe my brethren, Indigenous brothers and sisters have been denied this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, blah, 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 blah. I feel embarrassed that, it, you know, because Queensland had a 63% of the vote, were, sorry, the where was it? Queensland was 62% of the vote was no and that type of thing. I'm very embarrassed. I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to be a Queenslander. Mm-hmm. And they'll be able to, you know, bung it on like that and get their, get their five days off. The whole, it's a joke. Actually, Queensland was higher than that. You're looking at the referendum result in my notes for the Republic, Scott, I think. Oh, which, okay, gotcha. Which we'll get to, which is one of the sort of things that has come up as a topic is that... The result from this referendum, to a large extent, copied the result 
from the referendum for the Republic. So in the notes I've got here, overall the vote for the Republic was defeated, 54%, 54.87 said no. In terms of states, Queensland was the highest in that case in saying no to a Republic at 62%. No states actually passed it. Victoria was the closest, again. The Australian Capital Territory actually was in favour of the Republic quite strongly, which again matched our recent referendum. And interestingly, according to Wikipedia, the highest yes votes for the Republic uh, referendum came from inner metropolitan areas. Again, similar to... That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So votes in opposition to the proposed uh, Republican uh, vote came predominantly from rural and remote divisions as well as as many outer suburban areas. So on those statistics, it kind of, the results matched up. And And that's 30 years ago, isn't it? It's, when was that? 25 years ago, something. Was it 1999, wasn't it? Not sure when that was. Hmm. Hmm. So Father Frank Brennan who we've talked about over the years on various things. He's the Jesuit priest who gets involved in a lot of stuff. And he was... Leading art socialist. Yeah. Also, just for context, he's the one who also said that if they brought in a rule that if you hear about child abuse in the confession, you must alert the authorities, and he said that he wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So despite that... okay. He still gets a run on all sorts of government bodies. He's definitely been one in favour of the yes vote and he was on the Karma Langton panel that was behind the report that was done and he's been an advocate for Indigenous rights for many years and definitely a man on the side of the yes vote and not only Jesuit priest but lawyer as well. So he, he was basically saying that Any referendum that does not get bipartisan support is doomed to fail. And I'm just going to play. Let me just find this clip now that I've said that. I think he's right. Yeah, bipartisan support. Let's let's see what he had to say about needing bipartisan support. We can all understand that Aboriginal leaders with the publication of this letter are very angry and upset, but I think we have to accept that it's simply a given. doesn't matter what the topic of the referendum. If you do not have bipartisanship, there's just no point. And to draw all sorts of other conclusions might not all be altogether warranted. We are, and I think that what's happened is they played roulette with the country's soul. We're way back, look at that letter that's come out from the Aboriginal leaders today. The anger, the disappointment, the despair. These are the people we've got to be able to work with well and constructively and in trust in order to close those gaps. And so, so much of what Noel Pearson detected as love in the air during the last week or two of the campaign, that's evaporated. Why? Because basically... I'm just pausing there. I noted a little bit of anti-Noel Pearson in that sentiment there, but I'll just finish it off. 
basically Australians have voted as they've always voted in referendums. They've basically said that we need to be sure that either there is a crisis or that there is consensus among our politicians. And the great tragedy of this, Kieran, is that in the end, all you've got to do is listen to people at the family barbecue nowadays. I mean, those who blame Albanese are those who are the Tory voters. Those who blame Dutton are those who are the Labor voters. And that sort of partisanship should never come into a referendum. Once it does, the referendum is lost completely. So he's he's kind of making the argument that it doesn't matter what the topic, if there's not bipartisan support, then you're kind of going to get the result that you got on the Republican vote and on the voice vote. And so maybe people who are reading the voice vote as a racist response are wrong, maybe, because maybe this is just what no. happens when you don't get a bipartisan support. What do you think of that, guys? Now, why why would you want a nuanced answer? <laughs> Where you can just blame racism. What do you reckon, that Scott? I think he's. I think he's right. You know, it's one of those things. I blame them both for the failure of the referendum because Albanese, I think, would have been quite at liberty to sit down with the Indigenous leadership and say to them, "It's going to be defeated. There's no point us throwing good money after bad. It's going to be defeated." So I just think that they should walk away from it. Then, on top of all that, then. God, what's his name? Dutton was, he was very quick off the marks to say no. And everything he was asking for was asking for the design of the voice and all that sort of stuff that was going to be up to Parliament to decide. Now, if that was where, if that was where it was going, then he, then Albanese could have actually said to the Indigenous leadership, okay, you want it to go ahead, but I think we've got to hold off for six months. And we've got, to, we've got to have this hashed out with the opposition and that sort of stuff so that we can get them on board for what the design's going to look like. And then you've got something that you could take to the public and say, if you vote yes, this is what this is the legislation we're going to put before Parliament to get it approved. Then you would have had something that would have been a little less wishy-washy than what we had because it was very much opening up the air and that sort of stuff where you said, well, Parliament will design it, which I had no problem with, but a lot of people out there did have a problem with it. They didn't trust the politicians to get it right. So as a result, I think that the smartest thing for them to do would have been actually turn around and say, okay, this is what we're going to put to the Parliament, this is what we'll get voted on, and this is what we're going to do. But, you mm. know, it's just one of those things, like the National Party was first off the ranks and that sort of stuff when they actually opposed it before anything had been decided on it, before there'd, been even, there'd even been some talk about the question. Well, well, let me play a little bit from Frank Brennan again about the process because he makes the argument that the wording had been determined before the parliamentary committee and the opposition had a chance to be involved. And he was also critical that there wasn't a constitutional commission Looking, exactly. looking at this, and and so let me play him on the sort of flawed process, and let me play that now. So here we go about the process. Was that sure. the foundational problem here? That some of yes. the recommendations, some of the leadership, went too far to get that agreement across the political divide. 
It's been the problem all along, Kieran, because what we've had is the Liberal and National parties have been clear that they're on the table in relation to minimal symbolic change, as the Aboriginal leaders would call it. The Aboriginal leaders said they wanted something substantive. Where things started to go wrong in terms of process was in 2012 when Julia Gillard set up her expert panel where they recommended a racial non-discrimination clause. Now that was something substantive, but it could never fly. It was never subjected to the open, transparent scrutiny where you get all the lawyers and all the politicians at the table. The same thing happened with this, where it was said that yes, Aboriginal people gathered at Uluru and they called it a constitutional convention. But there'd never been anything like a constitutional convention which was open to the other 97% of Australians. There's been nothing in place since 2017. And so the process was defective from the beginning. And what we then had was after the Gama Festival, as you know, that there was no move made by the Prime Minister to set up a process. And by the time there was a parliamentary committee where the coalition could come to the table, it was over game set and match. The words were set in concrete. So sadly, bipartisanship by means of process was never there. And so it was always doomed. That was an interesting explanation, I think, that there should have been a process that involved a constitutional commission involving everybody, not only the 3%, but the 97%. And that yeah, it was... I, I, I agreed with... I agreed with him. Because, you know, it's one of those things that every, you know, we had a constitutional convention over the Republic, it failed, but we had it. Mm. You know, we've had constitutional conventions whenever there's been talk of changing the Constitution. Now, only seven of them got up, didn't they? Something like that, of the referendums that we've had. Not sure. Seven of them. There's only seven or eight of them are passed or something like that. Mm. But the one thing they all had in common was there was a there was a constitutional convention. There wasn't in this case. Mm. And, you know, he was right there. He was saying that, you know, you got 3% of the population got together at Uluru. The other 97% weren't involved. Mm. And Albanese did come to it and that sort of stuff and say, well, you know, this is, you know, how he said, well, this is, this is the proposed wording that I put forward, had it bounced around the cabinet table and that sort of stuff, then he said, well, this is the question, yep. you know. And without but, – but also, pro- sorry, go ahead. The, the Uluru thing, so there was the Freedom of Information document that contains the statement from the heart. Mm. And, and that that's showing one side of the negotiation table, isn't it? It's showing the position of the Indigenous people. This, this was a wish list, and, mm. and I don't think – that they honestly expected they were going to get all of those concessions. But it's been held up as this is what is going to happen if you get the constitution through. Mm. I, I think that was that was the scare tactic anyway. And we never had the what's the other side want, you know, and as was said, the sitting around the table, the hashing it out, and the yes, this is something that we can all get behind. So Frank Brennan makes because- it. Frank Brown's making the argument that it's crucial to get bipartisan support. You're doomed without it. And what Mm. they essentially did was take the Uluru Statement, where 3% of people considered it, and quickly wrapped up a question and and put it forward to the opposition without any 
you know, the question was done and dusted without any negotiation at that point. And so really the chances of bipartisan support were crueled by an inadequate process and that then crueled the whole thing the way it was done. So it's sort of quite scathing in that sense of the inadequate process that was done. Doomed but the, the Uluru Statement also contained a treaty. Mm. So, so it was only part of that. So it, it mm. wasn't it, – it would have satisfied nobody, I think. Mm. Anyway, let's get on with his final comments about the way forward. I think there's goodwill and there's general agreement in the community and on both sides of the political aisle in Canberra that something more has to be done to close the gap, particularly on those ghastly health statistics. Well, guess what? We've got a coalition of peaks and there was an agreement which was negotiated with the Morrison government with that coalition of peaks about which we've heard next to nothing while the referendum's been playing out. So let's get that coalition of peaks working properly. And in terms of health issues, you've got an enormous operation there with Nacho, which represents all the community-based Aboriginal health organisations, all 145 of them. They've got splendid offices there in Constitution Avenue in Canberra. They're headed up by a very competent Aboriginal civil servant there in uh, Patricia Turner. And why isn't it that they're not being listened to more closely? I mean, during the referendum campaign, we had the Minister of Health out there even writing an article saying he needs to listen to a voice, but there was no mention of Nacho or the Coalition of Peaks. So now that the referendum is behind us, I think there's a need for the real work to be done so that Nacho can be assured that they are right there at the table with the parliamentary processes and with the Minister, and that the Coalition of Peaks is now taken seriously, even though it was a creation at the time of the Morrison government. Let's get past the party politics and let's start doing something constructive in order to close those gaps. All sounds very sensible to me. There was a question about the treaty mm. and, and what it actually is. Uh, my understanding is it, it's a formal document between the Government of Australia and the Indigenous people recognising that the land was stolen and formalising any form of reparation. Mm. So it's basically we understand that this land wasn't historically peopled by white people and here is some form of compensation for what was done in the past. Mm. And 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 it sets a it resets a a starting point, I think. It's it says that yeah we we didn't come and buy this land properly in the first place. Here's our post hoc purchase of property. Mm. Is, 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 that possible, is it possible to find an appropriate vendor two hundred and fifty years later? Well, that's the question. And who are they going to negotiate with? Because they don't have a central tribal chief do they well that was the point of the voice yeah i know exactly and you know they don't have anyone that they can negotiate with and i think the voice would have given them something that they could have left behind that that the government could have negotiated with 
But as a result but, of not but, having that, you, can, you still would, can have a voice. You you still can have a a, a government appointed body. It's just not in the constitution. Yeah, you could do that. Uh, it's one of those things. Like Albanese has already said that he's not going to he's not going to legislate it. So, you know, ATSIC for all its faults and all that sort of stuff, it was a representative body of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Now, you know, you can certainly have a look at the leadership of ATSIC and that sort of stuff. You can throw a hell of a lot of stones at them because Jesus, did they deserve to have stones thrown at them? But the actual body itself didn't work didn't work too badly it didn't do a bad job of looking after them so you know at least it would have at least that would be something that the government could negotiate with because the the whole idea of a treaty is that you you've got two warring you've got two warring sides that are sit down at a table and they negotiate with each other and you know you you each of you gives up something so that you end up with some sort of negotiated settlement but you know, there's no one, there's no one left for us to negotiate with. So, you know, three well, percent of the population. Yeah, okay. So you get three percent of the population around the table talking to, talking to each other. I don't uh, think you can uh, get anything sensible out of that. No, exactly. So we do need somebody who is elected by them to represent them mm-hmm. in negotiations. For sure, which is something the voice would have given them. You know, it, it would have given them some. They would have been. They would have had someone that they would have elected and that sort of stuff out of their own 3% that they could have put up and they said, these are the lot we want you to negotiate with. But, you know, that's now dead and buried. So I don't know what the hell they're going to do now. Uh, uh, but, but, again, it, it doesn't have to be dead and buried. It's dead and buried in the Constitution. Mm. Yeah, for sure. So Albanese could go and legislate it if he really wanted yep. to, but he's already said he's not going to. Are both of you guys kind of in favour of a treaty? Is that what I'm getting at? Not really. It, it's one of those things. I, I just think to myself, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be a little more sympathetic towards them because living up here in Mackay, I've actually seen a. Okay, you know, Bronwyn, if you're listening and that sort of stuff, you can throw rocks at me and call me a racist if you want to, but I've seen a nicer side to the Indigenous people up here in Mackay than what I saw down in Rockhampton. And, you know, they are a hell of a nicer than what I saw down in Rockhampton. Now, I don't know if it's because they're mostly Torres Strait Islanders up here or what the story is, but they are not as abrasive and that type of thing is what they are down in Rockhampton. Anyway, that's that's what I will say. So as a result, that has opened my eyes a hell of a lot and I have seen a different side of the argument living up here. So I am trying to open my mind to it. I'm not really in, 100% in favour of it, but it is something that I am prepared to entertain with my mind and that type of thing and then um, I'll think about it later but you know my mate down the road who's Torres Strait Islander and that sort of stuff he reckons that he reckons a treaty will be an absolute disaster because it would be so divisive and that sort of stuff that you end up you know that with 97% of the population having to bow down to 3% of the population and that's just never going to sit well with anyone in the chat room 
John asks, would a treaty be as divisive as a voice? Watley says it would be just as divisive. I think it might be a little bit more. Yes. I think it'd be I think it'd be even worse. I I think certainly the negotiation of a treaty would be Mm. because you've got the vast majority of people going, the past is the past, nothing to do with me, and 3% of people feeling um, wronged historically. Mm. Uh, But I think at the end of the day, nothing substantive is going to happen. Not not talking about, we, we can do things about the gap, absolutely, without having a treaty. But I think politically, we will never advance until we have some form of treaty that recognises the past. Yeah, but see, you know, New Zealand New Zealand only had to negotiate with one tribal group. You know, there was just that one tribal group that was the Maoris. So that was a hell of a lot simpler for them to negotiate with and that type of thing. That's why they got the Treaty of Waitangi. You know, it's... I don't know who the hell they're going to negotiate with over here. You know, because you've got several hundred tribes in Australia, don't you? Ah, let's talk about treaty in depth another time. Because <laughs> there's yes. so much involved. In... No, there is a shitload of negotiated. Let's it's not get too sidetracked on that one because that deserves I don't think six it's episodes on its own, uh, the pros and cons of that and the difficulties. Yes. So let's just move on a little bit from treaty and... Let's talk about how do we think about moral dilemmas because this is a lead-up to Cam Riley's bagging of me on his podcast. You, you telling Cam that he's wrong, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so do we remember our discussion with Liam who came on and we were talking about The Voice? It was a very civilised, well-conducted debate, I thought, where everybody got to have their say. We all walked away friends. So if you recall, his priority was to take urgent, helpful action, as he perceived it, for Indigenous people. And I explained that my priority was sort of non-racist, equal human rights, so that we were approaching it with different priorities or a different premise, if you like, a different emphasis of a particular right that we were more concerned with because we just happened to. And that was a result of our life experience and cultural experiences and whatnot. So in the field of rights, it is often the case that rights conflict and you have to weigh up and decide which right is more important at this particular point in time. I I think the point is that you're both coming at it from a place of well-meaning yes, and not trying to harm somebody. Correct. We both had a, a, a moral position that was defensible and it was just weighing it up. And, yeah. you know, what I was doing was saying, well, bearing in mind all of these different facts, perhaps this voice isn't as helpful as you think it is or isn't as necessary as you think it is and he would argue other things. So sort of being able to understand the moral premise that the other person was operating under was important. 
So, so we did that with Liam and he did that with me and we could compartmentalise our arguments and have a debate, each recognising the premise of the other. So I've got a book in front of me, Alistair McIntyre, After Virtue, and I want to sort of just give some different scenarios to demonstrate how this plays out. So on the topic of war, for example, one position might be a just war is one in which the good to be achieved outweighs the evils involved in waging the war and in which a clear distinction can be made between combatants whose lives are at stake and innocent non-combatants. But in a modern war calculation of future escalation is never reliable and no practically applicable distinction between combatants and non-combatants can be made. Think in Gaza here. Therefore, no modern war can be a just war, and we all now ought to be pacifists. That's one view of war. Another one might be, wars between the great powers are purely destructive, but wars waged to liberate oppressed groups, especially in the third world, are a necessary and therefore justified means for destroying the exploitative domination which stands between mankind and happiness. So what you've got there in the first case is the principle of protecting innocent lives. That's the premise that is being highlighted. And in the second one, it's the principle of self-determination is the principle that the person is relying on. So two different ways of looking at war. Another example would be abortion. One way of looking at it would be everyone has certain rights over his or own person, including his or own body. It follows from the nature of these rights that at the stage when the embryo is essentially part of the mother's body, the mother has a right to make her own uncoerced decision, uncoerced decision on whether she will have an abortion or not. Therefore, abortion is morally permissible and ought to be allowed by law. That's one view. An alternative would be murder is wrong. Murder is taking of an innocent life. An embryo is an identifiable individual differing from a newborn infant only in being at an earlier stage on the long road to adult capacities. And if any life is innocent, that of an embryo is. If infanticide is murder, as it is, then abortion is murder. So abortion is not only morally wrong, but ought to be legally prohibited. So again, you've got the right to bodily autonomy, first premise, versus universal right to life, second premise. Final example, justice demands that every citizen should enjoy, so far as is possible, an equal opportunity to develop his or her talents and his or her other potentials. But prerequisites for the provision of such equal opportunity include the provision of equal access to healthcare and to education. Therefore, justice requires the governmental provision of health and educational services financed out of taxation, and it also requires that no citizen should be able to buy an unfair share of such services. This in turn requires the abolition of private schools and private medical practice. That's one view of health and education. Another one would be everyone has a right to incur such and only such obligations as he or she wishes, to be free to make such and only such contracts as he or she desires and to determine his or her own free choices. Physicians must therefore be free to practice on such terms as they desire, and patients must be free to choose among physicians. Teachers must be free to teach on such terms as they choose, and pupils and parents 
to go where they wish for education. It goes on. So the first one is a premise of equality in terms of education, health. The second is the premise of liberty. So when we're looking at moral questions, as we did with Liam on The Voice, it was what's the moral premise that you're really holding on to close here and let's recognise that. So so let me just uh, go on a little bit here. Anybody want to argue with any of that at this point or just I'll just keep going? It's all good? Or so far? No, just keep going. Yep, okay. So every one of the arguments is logically valid or can be easily expanded so as to be made so. The conclusions do indeed follow from the premises, but the rival premises are such that we possess no rational way of weighing the claims of one against the other. So, so what's that saying is when it boils down to it, your main premise is equality, my main premise is liberty. And it's very difficult or impossible for us to say, well, liberty always outweighs equality or equality always outweighs liberty. We don't have in our society an overarching anchor that determines which of those wins. So it goes on. For each premise employs some quite different normative or evaluative concept from the others so that the claims are made upon us are quite different kinds. Um, it is precisely because there is in our society no established way of deciding between these claims that moral argument appears to be necessarily interminable. From our rival conclusions, we can argue back to our rival premises. But when we do arrive at our premises, argument ceases and the invocation of one premise against another becomes a matter of pure assertion and counter-assertion. Hence, perhaps, the slightly shrill tone of so much moral debate. I think that's right in that on the voice, people had different premises that they were relying on and when people couldn't agree because nobody was prepared to say their premise is less important than the other person's premise. We're just left with people shouting at each other shrilly about the matter. I think that's where we got to with, yeah. with the debate. Uh, Jonathan Haidt explores that in The Righteous Mind, uh-huh. talking about the mindsets, the differences in, in thought process behind conservatives and progressives mm. and saying it's very much which moral values we hold most closely mm. and, and what we associate with disgust. And so conservatives tend to be more groupthink, whereas progressives tend to be more individualistic. Libertarians tend to be loaded. conservatives. Yeah. Libertarians, though, are more in the conservative camp now, which are the big individuals. Yeah, but it was more the the left leaning are much more about personal rights, so the the right to bodily autonomy. Yes, and the right to sexual freedom. Mm. Whereas the conservatives are much more society says that's a bad thing, therefore it's a bad thing. Mm. So, but is- saying that. Yeah, left-wingers have moral disgust around food hygiene, so they're much more picky about what they eat 
for want of a better term, whereas the Conservatives are much more around sexual hygiene. Right. Yep. So, so it, it's it's taking effectively. There was a series of questions which were not politically aligned, and depending on how people answered these questions, you could tell their political alignment. Yes, I'm sure you could. Yeah, some questions that seemed divorced from politics, but were indicative yes. of a political viewpoint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it would help if we had an overarching premise. Back in the good old days of religious belief, we did. You know, mm. God's law. That was it. That was the overarching moral. You know, if, what did God? What does God want? Okay, that's moral. That's the winning moral uh, premise. That would apply. No, no, no. So what does my priest yes, tell say you that God, God wants? wants? Yeah, exactly. But Alistair, so you reckon I should be stoned, do you? <laughs> so Alistair McIntyre says in After Virtue that the uh, post-Enlightenment, we don't have um, the benefit of a religious sort of moral anchor to, to determine which of these moral premises wins out. And McIntyre blames the Enlightenment for lack of morals. He says the Enlightenment rejected the idea of a virtuous life through fulfilling your telus or purpose in life. The Enlightenment imagined humans as agents of their own free will, guided only by their inner reasons or desires. So Aristotle could distinguish between what we are and what we ought to be, and this provided a moral anchor. But post-Enlightenment philosophers have no moral anchor, no point of reference against which to adjudicate competing moral claims. And without such a reference point, moral arguments become interminable and pointless, as we've seen. There's still the golden rule, I think. Mm. But do unto others is... Don't do to others. <laughs> Well, the inverse of that. Don't do to others what you wouldn't have done to you. Yeah. How does that help because in the voice to vote? It, it, I, I think in the voice debate, you say, do these people have a voice? Do they have an equal voice to everybody else? Do they have the same right to be heard that I have? Or sorry, the, the same ability to be heard. Mm. And, I, and I would argue that corporations have a bigger ability to be heard than either I or the Aboriginals. Mm. I don't know that the golden so, rule helps in all situations. I don't know that that's yeah. going to get us there. But here's my, start. here's my anchor for you. I think we're social cooperative creatures. We need a cooperative communal society that works together to advance our little beehive here on earth. Judge competing moral claims against this imperative. That's what I say. A little bit of Aristotelian. Aristotelian telus type thing happening there. And I say that splintering off into identity groups is anathema to that project and constitutional approval of racial profiling will do serious damage to our beehive. So that's a little lead-in to Cam Riley bagging me on his podcast. Let me find the, the clip on that and I'll play it for you and we'll get into that one. Here we go. Uh, this is Cam on his podcast, The Bullshit Filter. Yeah. People just made a horrendous decision. And yeah, as I said, I'm just extremely embarrassed and ashamed and appalled by 
my fellow countrymen and women this week. I'm disgusted, and quite frankly, I can't wait for AI to take over. As I said, I think the human race is on. done. Yeah. yeah. Stick a fork yeah. in us, we're done. As good uh, as yeah. we can do. I mean, I, Australians yeah. listening who voted no, you probably don't if you listen to this show. Although I know, you know, you never know. My, my, my friend Trevor, who hosts the Iron Fist podcast, who's been a guest host on this many times, told yeah. me that he was voting no for reasons that made absolutely no sense. And he's usually very progressive. And I went out to lunch with him, listened to his arguments. They made completely no sense to me. And, you know, I'm embarrassed for mm. Trevor. I'm embarrassed for yeah. Trevor. I'm embarrassed for anyone who voted no. So there you have it. There you go. He's embarrassed for me. So what do we take away from that? Well, maybe he's right. Maybe my arguments are ridiculous and make no sense whatsoever. But I've received enough unsolicited positive feedback to feel confident that my arguments have some merit. Scott, even though you started the episode by saying, I think I'm going to agree with Cam Riley on this, would you agree with him that they were ridiculous? No, I don't. Right. It's, I, I don't agree with that. Right. You know, I still don't agree with your arguments, mm-hmm. but I was talking to Anne Reid about you when she was at one of my drink sessions and all that sort of stuff. We were talking about China and Russia and that type of thing, and she said that listening to Trevor, you can't help but agree with his arguments. But at the end of the t- at the end of the at the end of the argument, that sort of stuff, you still got to turn around and disagree with him, Paulus, Paulus. So anyway, it's I, just and I'm perfectly comfortable with that. I really don't yeah, have a problem that. with that. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. It's one of those things. I don't agree that your arguments were ridiculous. Mm. I didn't. I didn't agree with any of them. Mm. But you had some very logical, valid reasons for them. Mm. So, and I think you know, what happens yes, is, but where's your humanity, Trevor? Yeah, <laughs> yep. So, what I think this comes down to is a recognition of of the premise and Cam's inability to recognise that. Well, I'll get on to that. But so, so yeah. Look, I think Cam's one of the great thinkers. Like he's been very influential in my thinking on on various things. So, and often he will say on a particular matter. You know, he's got no dog in the fight, you know. Often he's talking about historical matters or whatever or the USA or whatever and he'll say he just goes where the evidence leads him and that's how I feel in this debate. Like a yes vote would not have made the slightest difference to my life. Like I don't look at it and go, this has any personal effect on me. It's really just where does the evidence and the ideas and the morals lead me and believe me, dear listener, it would have been much easier a long time ago to just agree with the left-wing zeitgeist and go, yeah, it's a good idea, let's do it. But that's just not how I, that's not the conclusion I came to, although it would have been incredibly easier for me because I knew that these sorts of conflicts with people would arise. Like it's just inevitable. So I think that Cam's adopted a premise of helping the downtrodden and he didn't see or value my premise of colourblind equality. That was the purpose of all of that other stuff that we've just led up to. Also, 
On this particular topic, I don't think Cam read deeply enough, and what he did was he trusted the prevailing left-wing view. And, and he said as much because he, he basically he said that his heuristic is that on many issues where you just don't have time to examine all of the detail and look at all of the issues in depth and read all of the papers, you have to find the people and the institutions that you trust and what do they say and then follow their advice. So, for example, climate change. Who amongst us has the time to read all of the scientific papers and figure out the nuts and bolts of climate change. But when we've told repeatedly that 97% of scientists agree on climate change, then we go, okay, that'll do me and I don't have to read all that stuff. Like that's not a bad heuristic in that sort of situation. Well, but they would argue that 90% of Aboriginals wanted the voice. Yes. And and whilst 90% of Aboriginals may be an expert in being Aboriginal, Mm. I don't know that they're an expert in what is best for the nation as a whole. Correct. Correct. Or even for themselves because Cam basically had, you know, when I do meet with Cam, I am going to have one, you know, I don't, anyone can disagree with me. That's not a problem. I will have an issue and say, you know, you call my arguments ridiculous. You could have at least said what they are, like, and then said they are ridiculous, like, Anybody listening to that podcast just doesn't know what my argument was. It, it's just only that it's ridiculous. So it would have been nice if he could have at least paraphrased what they were and then stated that he thought they were ridiculous. But in any event, he gave two reasons for voting yes, and they were that Indigenous people asked for it. That was his first reason. Now, the ironic part of this is it his comments about my my thoughts, were at the close to the end of a two-hour podcast. The first 90 minutes were talking about the creation of the State of Israel and the history of it, which was basically Jews wanted a State of Israel and we gave it to them and that was a mistake. Like, that, that was essentially what the first 90 minutes of the podcast was, that an oppressed people wanted something and giving them what they wanted proved to be an enormous mistake. Yet in arguing for the yes vote, Cam says an oppressed group of people want something and that's good enough for me. And I just like, can't you see a little bit of a problem here? I I don't think giving the Jews a nation was the mistake. The mistake was giving it to them on land that was already owned by somebody else. And that's what they wanted. Uh, and, they wanted the land the in Palestine. Yes. So they wanted that block yeah. of land over there. That's what they wanted, and that ultimately wasn't a good idea for anybody. So it just strikes me as ironic that that his first argument in favour of the yes vote was that Indigenous people want this. And just because an oppressed people want something isn't always a good idea. Uh, Primary example, Israel and the state of Israel, which you'd just been talking about for an hour and a half. The second thing he said was that, okay, if you don't have time to examine these topics, and he's a busy man, he's got other things to do, and he didn't get into the nuts and bolts of uh, this argument like we have, was, you know, trust 
people with long standing that you've learned over time to trust and what's their position. And he said, you know, this is a sort of a, a, a social issue, human rights issue. Who are the groups who know that shit? And he said, well, the Human Rights Commission and Amnesty. So when groups like that come out in favour of a yes vote, then for somebody with limited time to examine all of the details, then that's what he's going to go with. And just for fun, I thought, I'll just look up what the Human Rights Commission actually said. You guys know that the Human Rights Commissioner, Lorraine Finlay, said, quote, the draft wording inserts race into the Australian Constitution in a way that undermines the foundational human rights principles of equality and non-discrimination and creates constitutional uncertainty in terms of its interpretation and operation. That's what the head of the Human Rights Commission actually said. Now, guess what? The Human Rights Commission itself came out with a completely different statement. So the commissioner and the commission are at loggerheads and poles apart. And guess what? Lorraine Finlay was a Conservative government appointment and former Human Rights Commissioners have come out and said they disagree with her and the Commission itself does. But my point is the actual Commissioner came out with an argument that's pretty much my argument and, okay, she was in a Conservative government appointment that doesn't necessarily reflect the Human Rights Commission's position. But maybe that all demonstrates that maybe the Human Rights Commission isn't as solid on this issue as you might think they are. But no group is going to be the expert on the voice because the voice is not just about human rights. It's about how do we organise a society? How How do we deal with the best way of creating a cooperative, harmonious community where, you know, is equality an important factor in that or not? And, you know, I don't think there is a group that was an expert on the voice. You had to shop around a number of different areas. Anyway, so, so yeah, that was, you know, a wrap-up of, of that and... You know, these are the sorts of discussions and conflicts and things that we knew was going to happen with this whole voice argument. And, Joe, months ago you and I, at one point, I think Scott was around, we were like, okay, are we going to talk about the voice now? Let's go ahead and do it. And somebody wrote in to say our hand-wringing over potentially being called racist was pitiful. But it's precisely this sort of shit that you and I were worried about as just Mm. opening this sort of can of worms and... um, Well, the the whole uh, Martin Luther King, you know, I have a dream mm. where everyone is treated based on their content of their character, not the colour of their skin. Mm. Now, if you said that in the current age, that would be deemed racist. Yes. And that to me just seems bizarre. You'd be told if you're using that argument for a no vote that you've somehow abused the memory of Martin Luther King. We're in some Orwellian doublespeak when it comes to these things. And there'll be a good piece by Guy Rundle on this. But, you know, uh, the other thing was I I got an email from a a listener who's listened to 
probably hundreds of hours of me talking on this podcast who said, you know, I don't know you very well. I'm not sure if you're a racist, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, man, after all this time, if you think I'm a racist, you know, thanks a lot. So these are the sorts of things that we yeah, knew I were going to fly. I think, I, I think we need to recognise that we can agree on an outcome and disagree on how we're going to get to that outcome. Yeah. And we can agree. Uh, and to be, uh, be labelled as anti-something just because we're agree, we disagree on the method. And we've got to recognise people have different premises that, yeah, with different levels of importance that they attach to it. And if you don't understand the other person's underlying premise, then don't engage in the debate until you do, because you're just doing a disservice to everybody. But any comments on that before I move on to Guy Rundle, <laughs> Scott? No, no, no. Fair enough. Okay. Guy Rundle. So Guy Rundle, oh, what else? Let me just let me just play also just the final thing from final word from Cam on this one. This was his final bit. So really yeah. to all Australians who voted no, you should be fucking ashamed of yourselves. And I am ashamed for you on your behalf. So I think that's just a failure to recognise that some people might have a premise that they see as important, that is a legitimate premise, and they see it as outweighing the premise that Cam's operating under. You know, the sort of implication from that is you ashamed, let's face it, if you're just wrong on some issue, you can be stupid, but ashamed, it's leaning towards... Shame's hinting at other stuff, isn't it? Anyway. Well, yeah, you could flip that script and say Cam should be ashamed. He was voting to entrench racism in the Constitution. (laughs) That's right. No, I think that's a bad faith. It's a bad faith argument and I wouldn't go there, but Mm. effectively that is the equivalent of what he's doing. I think that's a bad faith argument. Yeah. So, but, okay, now this is not uncommon with the reaction to the result of the referendum. And Guy Rundle, yes. who is a lefty, writing in Crikey, had this to say. The refusal of this by the electorate has made the cultural producer elite, the core of the knowledge class and its commentariat, very, very angry. Their first move has been denial of the obvious truth. The Yes campaign was a shambles. The second stage, which began last week, was simple hatred and disdain directed at the mainstream of the country. I think we could include Cam as showing disdain for the mainstream of the country in his comment there. So Guy Rundle quotes Sean Kelly writing in The Age, and Sean Kelly said this, I have been struck by the widespread conclusion based on polling that Australians were persuaded by the argument that the voice would divide the country. Voters may well say this was what persuaded them, but it is likely that most were instinctively against the idea of the reasons they were able to choose between to justify their choice. This one sounded most attractive. Guy Rundle goes on. 
Well, the voice would divide the country. That is its intent. This was the great blind spot of the Yes campaign. Run with to the end. The division between Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous Australians was essential to recognition. It was the enactment of recognition. We weren't creating a voice, a separate assembly for, say, the benefits-dependent disabled, whose powerlessness, invisibility and suffering would match that of many Indigenous groups. We proposed to specifically recognise the separateness of Indigenous peoples by recognising no other social groups as requiring or deserving a voice assembly of their own. This was the essential mechanism of the voice. The yes case, that this was really a higher unity arising from the imposition of division, was gobbledygook and sussed by the mainstream as such. I agree with that entirely. He goes on. That just goes to show that being educated doesn't make you smart. The voice wasn't a right-wrong answer. It's not exams which progressives love and everyone else hates. It's not how the contents of thought differ. It's the form of thinking that differs and the different moral systems that arise from that. I think that's kind of referring to what I was just talking about with moral premises. Will this utter debacle for progressives serve as some sort of wake-up call to editors and proprietors of these publications that for the good of the country in general and left and genuinely progressive and liberal thinking in particular, they must create centres of forthright and uncompromising debate so that ideas and strategies are genuinely tested against reality before being applied to the world? Well, dear listener, this little podcast is your little centre of forthright and uncompromising debate. I like to think. Yeah, it's dead right. This is the gobbledygook, doublespeak, Orwellian talk that this was a, an inclusiveness. It was a divisiveness. I think Guy Rundle's put it quite accurately. But, you know, other people say that this, the shrill voice of the yes vote is saying if you voted no, it had to be because you were a racist. It's just not the case. <sighs> yeah, we've seen that elsewhere with the college admissions in America mm-hmm. where Asians are now being limited to a certain percentage of the, the population, mm. the campus. Mm. Uh, uh, and the argument is to right historical wrongs, but historically the Asians were just as oppressed as the blacks. Yeah. But now they're succeeding and so their numbers need to be limited. And it seems the exact opposite of trying to right past wrongs. Such dangerous territory. Treaty. Now, in Queensland, it was policy of both the LNP and Labor to sort of negotiate forwards for a treaty. The LNP leader, Chris Fully, came out and said, well, in light of the referendum, particularly in Queensland... We're going to listen to the people and when it's no longer our policy to try to negotiate the treaty. And Palaszczuk was quite clever, I think, Scott, when she said, well, if we can't get bipartisan support, then we'll have to drop it. So sorry. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with you. you know, it, it's one of those things. I just thought to myself that she had no choice. Hmm. 
because the LNP could would have wedged her with it. If it came down to an election issue, which it possibly could have, then she would have she would have been out there on her own and that sort of stuff, arguing against what was basically the will of the people up here. I think it was a godsend for her when when the LNP withdrew, you know, bipartisan support gave her an excuse to withdraw it as well. Apparently, a lot of the left are not happy about that. Sorry, Joe. I was about to say, I think the LNP have recognised that this is a, a fault line along political lines mm-hmm. and that they can exploit that. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, may, maybe she was right to, to disengage, but I don't see why the state couldn't do something that the federal government couldn't, Well, assuming think- that both sides wanted to. Yeah, but when both sides don't want to, I think she's probably yeah, right. I, I, I think you've hit the nail right on the head, Trevor. If you don't have if you don't have the support on both sides of the aisle, then you've got to walk away from it. Yeah, I think that's a fair. You know, I mean, she she can she can still have it as a Labor Party policy and all that sort of stuff, mm. but she should actually just say what she said that is that we're not going to pursue it. Because Frank Brennan, I don't know if it came out in one of those clips, but he accused the the organisers of of this of playing roulette with people's emotions in that they they worked them up to an expectation of a victory in a situation yes. that was doomed because it was no longer bipartisan and mm. I think Palaszczuk would be doing the same if she pig-headedly proceeded with it and ran mm-hmm. with it when it's doomed to failure. That's that's not. That would be doing a disservice to people to get their hopes mm. up and then have them sort of Dashed. told that if people reject this, it's because they're racist, and then people reject it and they go, oh, shit, everyone's a racist. So, yeah. So, I mean, in theory, you could start negotiations. Mm. You could get part of the way there. But, yes, until the LNP are on side, then you're not going to get anywhere you could have the beginnings of negotiations, but you couldn't yes. reach a conclusion where you could say we're taking this to Parliament. Yes. Yep. Because yeah, you know the Tories, the Tories will win government, not just throw it out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, thinking of things moving forward, there was a joint media release on the seventeenth of October. Uh, Linda Burney, Jason Clare. Marion Skimgore, and Australian and Northern Territory governments have directed officials to conduct an assessment of boarding school options and capacity in Central Australia. This will be conducted by the National Indigenous Australians Agency, the Commonwealth Department of Education, and the Northern Territory Department of Education. All relevant stakeholders, including the Central Australian Aboriginal Leadership Group, the Central Australian Regional Controller, and local schools, which may be seeking to establish or expand accommodation options, will be consulted. So it's looking at boarding school options in Central Australia. Minister Burney said, listening to the views of people in Central Australia is an important step and is consistent with the approach we're taking in our plan for a better, safer future for Central Australia. Minister Clare said... This is about working with local schools and local Indigenous leaders to make sure students have the support they need to reach their potential. Similar wording from the other minister. 
that's how the system has been working and will continue to work when there's a project like this that they're considering, consult with the stakeholders, get their opinions, formulate a policy. Like that's what's been going on and will go on. So this argument that Indigenous people have not been listened to, this is the sort of thing that's been going on all the time. Uh, guys, that's over an hour already. I don't know. All right. All the time. H- historically, I don't know if that was true, but certainly recently it's true. Yeah, okay. Not 50 years ago. Yep. You know what? We could talk about Gaza, but yeah, might save it for next week because I've got a feeling not a lot's going to happen between now and then. And No, it appears that the Israelis are balking at their land invasion of Gaza. Does it? The Yanks are telling them, yeah. The the Yanks are telling them to hold off and that sort of thing. They're doing what they're told. Yeah. Apparently, the Yanks are going to put some more equipment on the ground and that sort of stuff. So they're actually telling them to wait until that's all set up. Right. But uh, hang on, are you still there? It's oh. things. I think the. I think it could actually blow up into a full scale war in the region. Actually. Yeah. So, I, I, and the question is whether that was the intent, was to provoke Israel into overreacting to lead to a fracturing of the understandings that Israel has come to with other Arab nations, particularly Saudi yeah. Arabia. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the, you know, it, it's one of those things because apparently Saudi Arabia has pulled the pin on negotiating a normalisation of relations with Israel, you know. Right. I've got – actually, I will do a little bit because in case it gets a bit old, I've got the essential report – I was polling people about the polling Australians about Australia's involvement with the Israel-Palestine conflict. So, so I've got on the screen. The question was, in terms of the current conflict in Israel and Palestine, what do you think Australia should do? And the answers were: provide active assistance to Israel, or stay out of the conflict entirely, or provide active assistance to Palestine. And what did Australians say? Well, 23% said give assistance to Israel, 13% said give assistance to Palestine, and 64% stay out of it. So that was the overall response. What do you reckon gender would be? I'd say mostly women would say stay out of it. Mm. In Yes. Men slightly more positive about assistance to Israel. So 26% of men wanted to assist Israel, 21% of females um, wanted to assist Israel, and they were both sort of 13 and 14% when it came to assisting Palestine. So men a bit more inclined to assist Israel. Guys, what do you reckon the age... Would young people be more likely to assist Israel or Palestine, and would old Palestine. people okay? And old people Israel okay. Old old people Israel okay. Because it it's down to politics. Here we go, Joe. Well done. So, in terms of assisting Israel, if you're 55 plus, 30 percent of Australians wanted to do that, and only a percent of over 55s wanted to support Palestine. Okay. But in the younger age group, the 18 to 34s, more people wanted to assist Palestine. So 25% wanted to assist Palestine 
only 20% Israel. So there we go. Our community divided by age yet again. Guys, voting intention? Which party? Follow age. Okay. So Greens voters, Palestine. Yep. Yep. Liberal nationals. Let's see what the answer is. And let's go. Yeah. Coalition voters, 34% want to support Israel and only 9% Palestine, whereas in the Greens, 24% for Palestine and 18% for Israel. Now, interesting, isn't it, Joe? You were talking earlier about indicators that are seemingly divorced from politics but are just a guideline as to political affiliation. Yes. And this is a classic sort of example, isn't it, that that we were able to pick allegiances on those groups based on those fig- on those things. So, yeah, there we go. So interesting. We'll see how see how community opinion changes over time with that one. So right. Well, Joe of Devon and Scott of the Tropics, that's enough for one episode, I reckon. All the, people no in, all the people in the chat room, thanks for your participation. That was good. We'll be back with something next week. Talk to you then. Bye for now. And it's a good night from me. And it's a good night from him. Good night. Yeah. Iron fifth and a rival glove. Real shit.